I'd like you to turn to Psalm 127. The American dream. We, we all have an idea of what it is. It's an ideal that we live by here in America. Very few people know where it came from. It was a phrase coined in 1931 by a guy named James Truslow Adams in a book called The Epic America, written during the beginning of the Depression. Times were a little bit gloomy, but he had a hold of this idea of what America could be and the potential it had. And basically what the American dream embodied, according to Adams, was this. Each man and woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are. Now that sounds fantastic. Back then, uh, the politicians of the day said the American dream was a car in every garage and two chickens in every pot. And you got to remember, this is at a time when the economy was failing and there weren't very many chickens floating around. So uh, he set this ideal and we have embraced it to its fullest. Uh, David Platt says this, he suggests that the American dream teaches us that our greatest asset, watch this, our greatest asset is our own capability. So, and that sounds good as well. That sounds very American, very United States of America. But if, if we appropriate that, if we buy into that, it will lead to two trains of thought that we have to be careful of. Number one, our success in life is contingent upon our own capabilities. Think about that one for a while. Our success is contingent on our own capabilities. And number two, and this is where we begin to go off the tracks a little bit, that we can achieve something apart from God. Our success is dependent upon our capabilities and that we can achieve something, anything, apart from God. So in a time when fathers are encouraged to work as hard as they can, to do everything they can to support their families and provide for their families, and become a success. We all know what that means. I want to challenge the idea of what success really is. So we want to look a little closer at this. Uh, I want to challenge the idea of how we work and why we work. So a lot of us have been seduced into living what amounts to be a lie, and I'm here today to tell you, just by my personal testimony, that that can have an impact on your family. It can have an impact on the people around you. So today, I want to ask you this question, and this is not just for fathers, but we're going to kind of zero in on them, but it, it, this is for all of us, and you'll see how this works for the entire body of Christ. Here's the question. Are you living the American dream? Are you living the American dream? Are you living that dream of success, that dream of being a self-made person, that dream of achieving all the things that you have ever wanted? Are you living the American dream? And the confession was, I was. I did it, I did it for years. I, I worked long hours. I'd leave the house early in the morning and come back late at night. I had a great job. We were driving nice cars. I was able to provide for my family. I was able to give them everything they wanted. And i got to tell you something, it was a mistake. It was a mistake. And I have had to repent of that 
many times I repent of it today. See, I was trying to build things on my own. And probably the worst aspect of that was I was capable. I had success in the eyes of the people around me. And that made me believe that I was right, that I was doing the right thing. But I look back upon it, and I regret. I regret, I regret not setting the example that I should have set for my kids and for my wife. I was trying to make my American dream come true by working harder and harder. And again, I've had to repent from that. So if working harder and harder is not the formula for success, what is? Now, I, I want I you guys that are sitting here and thinking, oh my gosh, what's he doing to me? <laughs> just, just hang with me for a little bit because this, this is, this is going to get better, all right? Okay, so what is the formula for success? Psalm 127 shows us two snapshots of success. And the first thing we're going to see is the foundation of a successful family, and that's in verses 1 and 2. And the second thing we'll see are the fruits of a successful family, and that's going to be in verses 3 through 5. Psalm 127 is attributed to Solomon, and I believe it's late in his career, okay? He was the wisest man in the world. You know, he had that, that moment where God said, Name anything, I'll give you anything you want. And he goes, oh, Lord, give me wisdom to lead your people. And God said, because you asked for that, I'm going to give you so much more. Well, we, we think that that was a, a really wise decision. So the, the wisdom kind of preceded that. And, and it was a good decision because he wanted wisdom to lead his people. But Solomon went off the rails. And he started leading his people in the wrong direction. And what we found out about Solomon's life is his wisdom, apart from God, was totally destructive to him. Now, Solomon, at the end of his life, kind of repented because he wrote Ecclesiastes. And he said, literally, in Ecclesiastes, he said, look, everything I've done has been empty. And Ecclesiastes can be a very depressing book if you don't read it all the way through to the end, because in the end, he says, love God, fear God, that's everything. Solomon's wisdom finally turned around and made something that looked like a godly person, but he had to go through an ordeal to do it. And so I believe we're late in Solomon's career in Psalm 127 as well. It's attributed to him. So let's see what Solomon has to say about the foundation of a successful family. Now, the first thing we're going to see is the necessary element of a successful family. And it's in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house. Now, when we see house in the Old Testament, it can mean a physical dwelling, but it most likely means family. It means the lineage, the, the, the beginning of the family. Unless the Lord builds the family, those who build it labor in vain. This idea of laboring in vain uh, it has the connotation of doing it for yourself doing it for your own satisfaction, doing it for your own edification, doing it for your own pride, being able to point to it and say, look what I built. So that's the frame right here for the first two phrases. Then he says, unless the Lord watches over the city. Now notice we move from the home, the interpersonal relationships and the family, out into the community. 
And so the city can mean a lot of things, but what I want you to see it today as as a corporate structure. Unless the Lord builds your home, unless the Lord builds your town, unless the Lord builds your business, unless the Lord builds your job and all the relationships you have with the job, unless the Lord builds every relationship outside of your home, it's in vain. And the example he puts here is unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And the, the idea for vanity here, and it shows up in Ecclesiastes frequently, is it means nothing. It's like a vapor. It's a big, fat zero. So the watchman watches over the city for nothing unless the Lord watches over the city. So what we find out here, and again, you go back to our idea of what does the Old Testament reveal to us about the character and nature of God and what aspect of his plan of redemption does it show us? So we see something important about the character and nature of God here. We find out that unless God is involved, unless God is in the center of it, unless these things are done for God, all our labors are in vain. All our labors are empty. So God is that necessary element of the foundation of our family. He's a necessary element of the foundation of everything that we do. So we have a necessary element, but we also have needless elements of that foundation. And this is where we can learn some life lessons. Verse 2, it is in vain that you, and the you is plural. It's not, he's not talking to an individual. He's talking to a group of people. He's talking to God's people. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toll. Now, how many of us rise up early, and go to bed late. Thank you, Pat. (laughs) It makes for a long day, doesn't it? So the idea is, unless you're doing this for God, unless you're getting up early to honor the Father in your relationship, to honor the Father in your work, you are eating the bread of anxious toil. Wow, what is that? The Jews would have heard something similar to relentless, compulsive work habits. Think, think like this. Think about hurried lunches. Think about dinners in your car. Think about, well, think about this. I was in the car business. You, you know, we've talked about this frequently. My lunches were usually either at my desk or standing up in the break room because I, I, I couldn't be off the floor that long. Run across the street, get a milkshake. Carousel had just opened up when we opened up Joe Jacoby's, and their milkshakes were just out of this world. And I would go, oh, I'm hungry in the afternoon. I don't have time to do anything. I can't take the time to go over to McDonald's because it's too far away. And this place would just fall apart if I left it for 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I learned a rude lesson when I did leave because they just kept right on going. <laughs> but when we talk about this, this fruit of anxious toil, we're talking about everything being poured into the work with, with, with nothing distracting us. And if we're doing this apart from God, we're, we're doing that in vain. All the effort we're putting into it, 
all, all of the work, all of the long hours, all of the sweat, all of the tears and everything that we invest in these things are done in vain if they're apart from God. So he says, eating the bread of anxious hope, for he, God, your Father in heaven, gives to his beloved sleep. Now, he's not talking about taking a nap. He's not talking about, well, don't worry, if you work too hard, God will give you a nap in the afternoon. What he's talking about is the, the idea of relaxed, but not slothful, not lazy, fruitfulness of working for God. That you can actually be at rest if your priorities are right in what you're doing. That you can have some peace, that, that you don't have to run around frantically. I used to think that that stress of being in the job was what fed me. I used to think that, that, that the idea that you got to be there early in the morning, be there late at night, and be involved in everything, and that every, every fire needed to be put out, and every problem needed to be addressed, and everything that was broken needed to be fixed, that used to just give me energy. I thought it gave me life. Anybody feel that way? And I found out it, it was just killing me. It wasn't giving me life at all. It was sapping all the life from me. My focus was on my work. I was eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, there's a tension that we have to realize between this concept of anxious toil and the, the idea of a relaxed rest. And we have to recognize it's there because for those of us that are working, there's always this balance that we're trying to maintain between getting some rest and spending some time with the people we love and doing our job. And that's not always resolvable. Sometimes the weights go towards the job. Sometimes they go towards our family. Our family needs to see that sometimes they go towards the family. So we, we don't want to be lazy about this. We don't want to just throw everything up in the air and go, you know what? God's in charge. I'm going to work from him now on. I'm going to stick myself to a 35-hour week and just go home when I feel like going home because that's not a practical solution to this. So we need to recognize that tension. And what the psalmist has done here, what Solomon has done for us, is he's torn down the vanity that is involved in trying to make ourselves successful. He's just obliterated. Now, be careful because of that tension. Because what the psalmist is not saying is don't work hard. He's not saying just give up on your job. He's saying that whatever we do, we should make God the primary focus of all of our efforts. Now, it tells us that, that we need to make a lifestyle out of putting God on display in everything we do. That we, our testimony is not just the gospel that we share with people, but how we live that gospel out in front of everybody. Do they know we're a Christian? Does our, do do our, the people at work, do the people at school, do, do our social group, do they know how strong our faith is and what our commitment is to our Lord Jesus Christ? Does our family know that we're a Christian? We can tell them we're a Christian, but in particular, our family will watch what we do. You ever had one of those conversations that, that 
if the people at church heard you, they would go, I can't believe you said that. I know not many of you have. Kelly and I have had them, and you know what? We've done them in front of our kids. Thinking they don't understand what we're talking about. And they do. They're watching us. They're getting their cues from us. They get their attitude from us. I can tell you something as a pastor, and Kelly and I have discussed this before. I know when I'm spoken of highly in someone's home because the kids come to me. You know the candy we give away at the end of the service? The first ones that come up have a big smile on their face. Pastor John, can we have some candy today? Absolutely. They'll linger in my office. And just, just for the balance there, I know when I'm not spoken of well in a family because the kids begin shying away from me. So don't think that they don't listen. They do. So we have this lifestyle that we're called to to put God on display in everything we do for those that are closest to us and those that are in our wider social circles. God is necessary to our success if he's in the middle of all of our efforts. All of our efforts apart from God are worthless. They're nothing. I'll tell you how I know this is true. Um, Those of you who have kids, have you ever gone to clean out their room? (laughs) There's someone who has. (laughs) I mean, it will will enlighten you in a way that you have probably very seldom been enlightened. Because, you know, we've, we've gone into our kids' room, especially after they moved out, we had to... We had to go in and clean it. You know, it's kind of a poignant moment while they're leaving, you know. Let's leave the room the way it is because we kind of have those fond memories and everything. But there comes that moment where you're kind of saying, well, we've got to do something with this room. And so we go in and we clean it out. And, and we had trash bags full of stuff that they didn't want and that we had worked hard to purchase for them. Oh, here's that special thing that we were just so thrilled to give them and I'm about to throw it away. <laughs> and when, when, when I look at those trash bags, I go, this is everything we worked so hard for. And what did I give my children other than the latest collector Barbie? So you begin asking yourself those questions because we worked so hard to provide materially and we have to ask ourselves another question is did I work as hard to provide spiritually? Did I set the pace? Did I set the example? Now, I've already told you, I was a poor example for that. I have, I've had to repent. So our, our, our Solomon here has devastated the traditional foundation for a family, at least as far as the context of the American dream is concerned. And now he's going to lay a foundation for a life of truly profound significance. Let's look at the fruits of a successful family. And there are two of them. Now, now I want, I, want you to, I want you to listen to this carefully because it would be very easy to sit there right now and say, you know what, um, my family's moved out of the house. 
we're beyond this. I'm single. I'm young. I don't have any kids. But what we're learning about, we're learning a principle about the character and nature of God here. So this applies to all of us. Today, we're talking to fathers, but this applies to all of us. There are two fruits of a successful family. Uh, it applies to all of us. Uh, we're, we're about to learn a valuable attribute of the character and nature of God here in these short verses. So here's the first fruit in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So we, we can talk about children. They are our heritage. They are a reward. We have to view them as a reward. We have to view them as a blessing. Although once they reach 14 or 15 years old, they kind of challenge that concept, if you know what I mean. The, uh, uh, but they're still a blessing. And, and for those of us that have adult children, you know that you get through those tough years that, you know, they're trying to find their identity, they're trying to figure out who they are. Um, the, the first authority they push against is you, uh, and you're not quite sure what to do with all that, and where did this attitude come from, and why are they doing these things, and, and all that. Uh, but, you know, as they mature, as they get older, as they begin to realize that life may be just a little bit harder than they thought it was, the relationship kind of restores. And there's reconciliation and, and you know, the relationship we have with our kids now is just, it's fantastic. And so we're able to talk to them as adults. We're able to, we're able to allow them their faults and hope that they're able to allow us our faults as well. So children are a heritage and the fruit of the womb a reward. But here's what we need to see. When we make God our highest priority, when we put him on display, when he becomes uh, the focus of our expression, of our work, of how we love our family, of how we set an example for our family, there are rewards. God rewards godly behavior. And the fruit of that reward may be children. And that's here to just remind us of how precious our children are. Uh, and, but rewards can come in a lot of different forms. And one of them is that relaxed work that we saw in verse 2. We can have peace. We can have contentment. We can have joy if God is the center of our life. So if you're struggling in those areas right now, if you don't have peace, if you don't have contentment, if you're not getting your reward, the question you should be asking yourself is, is God the center of my life? Have I put him on the back burner? Have I told him, look, I've got these problems I need to deal with right now. I'll get with you as soon as they're cleared up, and I'll clear them up. It's the epitome of the American dream. I'll take care of this. And then you and I, we're going to spend a lot of time together. We do that with our kids. You do it with your kids, you're doing it with your Father in Heaven as well. So God rewards this godly focus in our, our life. And then in verse 4, it says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's, one's youth. Now, now we got this image of a warrior. we got this image of not just a warrior, but one who's equipped for battle. God not only rewards that godly focus, he equips us to do the things that he's called us to do. He equips us to live the lives that we're in. There's nothing beyond us because God is in us. There's nothing we can't handle because the Spirit is in us and we have the assurance that everything that happens in our lives will work out for our good and for his glory. So the first fruit is this reward. And the second fruit 
The second fruit is the most precious of the two fruits. Verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. That sounds like a fairly vague promise. I mean, we don't even have a gate in Warrington. So what's this look like? Well, watch what just happened. Once again, we moved from the home, the children, and the family out into the community, out into the corporate structure. And God is showing us how these principles work in every area of our lives. If we focus on him, we get the reward. Now, it's not the reward of abundance of material things. That's not what God wants us to have. It's a reward of a deeper relationship with him. That's where that peace, that's where that contentment comes from. We're depending upon the Father. We're trusting upon him. And as we do that, look, we get blessed. We get blessed not just in our home life, but in our corporate life, in our social life, in everything that happens outside the home. God's shown us how this principle works in every area of our lives. When we make God our primary goal, we receive God's blessing. And in the middle of that, there is no shame. There is no fear. Why is there no shame and no fear? Because God is in us. Because our relationship with us is strong with him. Because we can hold our head high because Christ is in us. And we're doing our very best to show the world what Christ looks like. And there's no fear because God has already promised us what the end looks like. We don't have to worry about anything happening to us because in the end, ultimately, we're with him. In the end, we go to be in his presence forever. Somebody said, don't you worry about dying. I said, bring it on. I want to be with him. But he blesses us here. So this is not an end time blessing. This is a blessing for right here, right now. Whatever you're going through, you can experience the peace and the contentment and the lack of fear that a relationship with Christ gives you if you're making him your highest goal and your fondest priority. So there we have our two snapshots of success. They're pretty formidable. We saw the foundation for a successful family is, is to be centered upon God, to be a godly person. We saw the fruits of the successful family, and, you know, those are blessings and rewards. And, and, and I want to tell you, because I told you guys, you know, I, I know some of you have these commutes where you've got to get up early in the morning and you, you get home at 6 or 6.30 or so and you've got just about enough energy to have dinner and go to bed. I get that. So we're not, we're not telling everybody to just go quit your job. We're not telling you. And Solomon's not telling you not to work hard. But he is encouraging us to examine why we work. He's encouraging us to, to examine our hearts and see what the motive of our hearts is. He's encouraging us to understand that that relationship with God, that relationship with Jesus Christ, is the very most important thing we have. And we have to put that on display for our family. We have to be the example of what it looks like 
to lead a godly life. We have to point to Christ in everything that we do. Nobody else is going to do this for us. I would love to be your children's example. But i got to tell you something. Moms and dads, you are the example. You're the one they'll follow. You're the one that they will emulate. You're the one that's with them. You're the one that's trying your best to love them. You're the one they're going to look to for their cues. Is dad reading his Bible? No, but he's telling me to. Mom and dad, do they speak well of the people around them? No, but they're telling me to. You know, my dad, my dad smoked. Anybody had a father who smoked? Two people, that's good. My mom smoked. My dad would have a cigarette in his mouth and tell me the evils of smoking. <laughs> and all I remembered was I can hardly wait for the day that I buy my first pack of cigarettes. They were 35 cents back then. All the money in the world. Who pays 35 cents for a pack of cigarettes? And as soon as I was able, I snuck around the corner. Do you remember corner stores where you knew the owners? <laughs> and said, my mom wants a pack of Winston's. And the owner of that store looked at me and went, so your mom's smoking Winston's now? <laughs> I'm like, ah! <laughs> busted. He smiled and sold me. So my, my dad didn't want me to smoke. But I got to tell you something, my dad set the example for me. So I smoked. Ultimately, it ended up taking my dad's life. So, see, that's, that's what we do. We set the bar. We set the example. Well, how, how do I do that? I, you know, I want to be a good example. And, and again, I, I want to let you off the hook. Some of us here are beyond that age. I get it. Um, some of us here think that it doesn't apply to us. It applies to all of us. Because it's not just the family that we set the example for. It's the community. See, this is why Solomon bounces between the home and the community. It's all the people around us we set the example for. How do we do that? Well, we, we demonstrate what our priorities are. We demonstrate that God is the focus of our lives. So, and and it, we can demonstrate that very simply. It's a, Mom and dad are reading the Bible before they leave the house in the morning. Mom and dad are praying at the table. They're praying for not just the people that they like, but they're praying for the people that have hurt them. They're praying for the people that have betrayed them. They're, betraying, they're asking God's forgiveness for the way they feel about it. They're asking God's forgiveness for the things that they've said. They're treating people as more important than themselves. They're treating their family as more important than themselves. They're treating the people outside the family as more important than themselves. We're doing all the things that God has shown us to do. And we can start that right now. There's no point in our lives where we give up and go, well, I blew that one. I'm just not going to be very successful at that. So God doesn't want us to lead successful lives, brothers and sisters. He wants us to lead holy lives. He's not trying to make us happy, amen. He's trying to make us holy. And it can start right now. Maybe I haven't done a really good job. Maybe I have fallen down on a number of things. Maybe I haven't set a really good example, but I know that now. And the Holy Spirit would say, and what are you going to do about it? 
And we should say, with your help and your presence, I'm going to work harder, not at being a success, but at being a godly person. You know why we want to do that? Because there are rewards. Because God wants to bless us. Because God wants to put himself on display through us. So the question for you today remains the same. Are you living? Are you living the American dream? Are you living according to God's plan? Those are the only two choices we have here. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, you are such a great God. <laughs> to give us these messages, Father, through Scripture that apply to every season of our lives, Father, knowing that nothing is lost, but there is so much to be gained. So we pray, Father, by the power and presence of your Spirit, you would help us, help us to lead lives that put you on display, that make you the main focus, lives that make us exemplars of what it is to be a godly person. We thank you for our fathers. Lord, we thank you for the ones that were good examples. We thank you for the ones who were bad examples, Father. Showing us what the contrast would look like. We thank you for the ones that love us. We thank you, Father, for the ones that hurt us, Father, so that, that we might be refined and drawn closer to you and depend upon you. And Father, forgive us. We repent for those times that we would confuse our earthly father with our heavenly father. And judge our Heavenly Father by those things our earthly father would do. And we also thank you for those times when we've seen Christ in our fathers. Lord, knowing that your presence is there. And we pray, Father, as we read the words of Solomon, that we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling, worthy of the blessings that you've given us. We thank you for being such a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.